1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, Paul the Apostle writing, he says this, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you've believed, and each has the role that the Lord has given. I planted, and Paulus watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers, you are God's field, God's building. And according to the grace that was given to me, I've laid a foundation as a skilled master builder. I always think of the Lego movie after that part. <laughs> and another builds on it, but each one is to be careful how he builds on it. Every shout careful. careful. Can you hear the tone in Paul's writing? He's saying, you, you, you need to make sure that you're very aware of what's going on. Paul loves the church. He's for it. It's not a flippant thing. He wants to make sure it's done well. For no one can lay any other foundation than that which has been laid down. That foundation, come on somebody, is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test every shall quality. quality. The quality of each one's work. If anyone's work he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and the spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and that is what you are. This is the word of the Lord. Will you lift your hands to heaven right now as we pray all across this building today? Father, we thank you for your word. It's alive, it's active, it's powerful. It has the ability to transform us from the inside out. God, with humility today, we submit ourselves to your word. Your presence, your spirit is in this room right now. We know that where your presence is, there's fullness of joy. Healing can take place. Hope is found, God. And today, as we glean from your word as we are taught by your word today, I pray that it would make us better than how we came into this place. And so we open our minds, we open our hearts to you today. Speak to us now in Jesus' mighty name. Come on in the church, shouted. Amen. Come on, can we give praise to Jesus just one more time today? You may grab your seats. I want to speak to you from this subject if you're writing notes. Um, I want you to write this at the top of your page today. Stewarding a move, stewarding a move. Today's message is gonna be what I'm gonna call a slingshot message, which means that we're gonna have to do a lot of pulling back for probably the, the more than half of this message. And then we're gonna let it rip. And we've got some points at the end that hopefully will just get us all right between the eyes. Is that all right with everybody? So I need you to just lean in with me today. We have gotta to do a lot of contextual work. We have to understand why Paul's writing what he's writing, why he's saying the things that he's saying in order to understand some of the points that, uh, that we're gonna look at today. When Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians, the churches around between scholars and theologians would surmise about two to four years old, give or take. This is the general consensus among scholars and theologians. The origin story of the Corinthians is a fascinating one, and it's captured in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. For the sake of time, we're not going to read it all today, but I'm going to kind of highlight some things. In Acts chapter 18, we see this is where Paul is going to meet Priscilla and Aquila for the first time. 
Silas and Timothy would grow up uh, or would show up on the scene uh, as well in order to help with the gospel work that was taking place there. Paul would preach Jesus in the synagogue, as the Bible says, to try to reason with the Jews and the Greeks. Paul would be met with opposition, and so he would begin ministering to the Gentiles, honestly, if you read scripture, out of frustration. He's like, I'm done with you guys, I'm done with you guys, I'm gonna go talk to some other people. And so he would begin ministering to the Gentiles as he would stay with a man named Justice who had a home right next to the synagogue. And the Bible tells us that Justice was a worshiper of God. Now the synagogue was a beehive, so to speak. It was filled with energy and, and life. It was crammed with people, but, but because of this, emotions would typically run really high. So high that we would see in Acts chapter 18, verses 12 to 13, that Paul, because of what he was preaching and what he was doing, he would be the recipient of what the Bible calls a united attack and he would be brought before a tribunal. Paul would be released as the charges would not stick and the leader of the tribunal, Galileo, would have no part in it. Upon Paul's release, however, the Jewish mob would be so angry, so frustrated because they wanted blood that they would seize a man named Sothenes and brutally beat him in front of the tribunal. This was the formative moments of the Corinthian church. Can I just say this? None of this ever happened when we planted this church. <laughs> that was not a part of our church planting story. We had coffee with people, we hung out, we talked about vision, and we got ready to plant a church in Olympus Junior High School over in Holiday. No one was beaten, there was no tribunal. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Church planting got easy these days. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul would tell them that Sothenes, this man who was beaten, was with him. Now, Sothenes is the man who we just talked about. He was the target of the, the mob's rage. And while there's debate as to whether or not this is the same guy, my opinion from my research and amongst many scholars and theologians would agree that this is the same Sothenes. And it's a very important statement that Paul is making at the beginning of his letter to the church. And what he's showing is that even a man who took the fists of others still would stand for the preaching and teaching of Jesus. He was a part of this thing, that he wouldn't give up on his faith because of it. So the origin story of the Corinthian church is shaped by violence, it's shaped by persecution, it's shaped by chaos, it's shaped by faith and, and friendship and salvation and perseverance and the miraculous. It's shaped by gospel proclamation and the power of the Holy Spirit. You could say that the Corinthian church, this letter that we have just read from, was experiencing a move of God. Show of hands, how many of you in both of our auditoriums and in the hub today, how many of you would have heard those type of words before, a move of God? People desiring a move of God. Maybe you've heard it this way. In modern nomenclature, we say like this, people are desiring, we wanna see a revival. I mean, you've heard those terms before. And I think what's interesting is that this idea of a move of God is at times nebulous. It's abstract for a lot. What is a move of God? Is the move of God just crazy supernatural things happening all around us? Maybe. Is the move of God vibrant worship? Maybe. Is a move of God the proclamation and teaching and preaching of the gospel? Maybe. Is the move of God marriages being restored? Maybe. Is the move of God kids coming back to the Lord? Maybe. 
It's a move of God, a church being planted right here in Salt Lake City, Utah, when people said that it wasn't possible, maybe. Is a move of God forgiveness being ushered to the friend that you've got tension between, maybe. And what we do is we single each of these things out and we declare one thing is a move of God. And I wanna declare that all of those things and many other things are an actual move of God. See, a move of God is not just charismatic in nature. Move of God is systematic in nature as well. And the Corinthians were experiencing these things. And so Paul says, hey, listen, this whole letter that he writes to the Corinthians, he's like, I, I, I got some news. And the news was this, you guys are going sideways. Some stuff's happening. And so he writes this letter to the Corinthians in order to help them steward a move of God. And so Paul reminds them in chapter one, verse 18, that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. Come on, is there anybody that has been saved by Jesus because you realize the power of the cross? So Paul's gonna systematically work to help them realize what this thing is resting on. He would then go on to remind them in verse 24 of chapter one that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And at the very beginning of chapter two, Paul then tells them that this whole thing that they are a part of, this move of God that they are a part of, in 1 Corinthians chapter two and verse four, this is what he says, it is a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? 1 Corinthians chapter two and verse five, so that faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. At the end of the day, Paul's helping them understand that say, hey, listen, men and women, they have no part in this. One has a role that they play. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what you need to understand is that when God moves, God moves. God's gonna do what God wants to do. God's gonna heal when he wants to heal. God's gonna speak when he wants to speak. God's gonna shift when he wants to shift. God is going to move how he wants to move. And then this is what he says to him, and you're to steward it. Have you ever thought about that before? Let me ask you this question. Everybody looking at me when I ask you this question. Could you steward a move of God? And it sounds presumptuous, because if you're like me, I go like, I'm just a human, I'm a knucklehead. Come on, do I got any knuckleheads in the house today? Let's go. Five of you, let's try that again. <laughs> Where are the real knuckleheads at? Come on, there, there we go, thank you. Auditorium two, all your hands are up, fantastic. See, Paul wanted these people to know that what they were a part of was a move of God and it was incumbent upon them to steward it well. Now, why did he need to remind them of this? I wanna say this to, to us as a church today. What often happens when a move of God takes place is that people become so enamored with the fruit of the move that they forget about the soil it grew out of. Another way to say this, People get so distracted by what is happening around them that they ignore what is happening in them and then they become frustrated when God stops working through them. In other words, don't let spiritual experiences cause you to sleep on spiritual disciplines. So Paul reminds the Corinthians about the power of God that's at work in their midst. And he spends the first part of this letter doing this. So it should be no surprise then when Paul writes what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 17, the verses that we just read. And it's in these verses that Paul highlights a very powerful truth concerning a move of God and what it looks like to be a part of one for us. 
Let's remind ourselves again of what scripture says. He writes, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are, everybody shout servants. servants. Every shout servants. servants. Through whom you believed and each has a role that the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. One planted, one watered, but God gave the growth. One planted, one watered, but God gave the growth. Come on, one planted, one watered, but who gave the growth? Who gave the growth? Who gave the growth? So as we discussed last week, we all play a part in this. What we build matters and it must be built to last. But right here, Paul helps the Corinthians and subsequently helps us see how the stewardship of a move of God actually looks. What does he say? Let me write this on your notes today. This is really important. He says, know your role. Know your role. One plants, one waters. God gives the growth. Now, this is what I love. The Greek word that Paul uses for growth is a word that's more nuanced and and more encompassing than just a a size-related description. In the American church, the Western world, we have a tendency to look at a lot of scripture in 1D, when actually the words that are used help us see it in 3D. So there's more, there's more punch to, to the words that are actually being used and, and the point that's being made. And so the Greek word actually carries with it this idea of movement, increase, continuation from some things origination. So you could say it like this, that God's desire for growth is to see something go from strength to strength or come on somebody, glory to glory. It's not about something just getting big, it's about something moving forward. But Paul clearly states that we play a specific role, planting and watering. Planting and watering. Why is this role important? I wanna say this today, because uncultivated or unhealthy soil stifles movement and growth. Let me illustrate it this way this morning. We've got up here some dirt. Some of you ready for spring to start gardening already? How many of you are like, bring on the sunshine? Come on, somebody. How many of you are like, we still want more snow? Where, where are you at? I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. But, so Paul says one plants, he's giving us an agricultural illustration. He says one plants, one waters, God gives the growth. And so what we have up here is we have some soil and I want you to see what this imagery looks like because the church has gotten a little bit sideways. I say globally and locally. And what happens is we have a lot of people, we'll talk about this in a moment, that are more concerned about the fruit than they are the soil. And the church has a tendency to gather on a Sunday and specifically focus on the fruit instead of realizing that the church and who we are is actually for all of us to gather together and get around the soil. Because our job is planting and watering, only God gives the increase. And so what we need to do is we we plant worship and we plant faith and we plant unity, we plant hope, and we give, and we serve, and we love, 
And then guess what we do? And we water it. And we till it. And we water it. One plants. One waters. But then God gives the growth. But then here's what happens in the journey of many churches and many people of faith is that when God grows something, when God moves, when God does something, the people become enamored with the fruit and begin to ignore the soil. And so what happens is we move from planting and watering to sitting around and staring at the fruit of what God is doing. And this is the slippery slope of unhealth within a church body. And so Paul says, hey, listen, I need you to understand something. You stay at the soil part. And God's faithful and he's going to keep on doing the fruit part. You stay dirty. And God's going to keep on making fruit happen. You got to have some dirt underneath your fingernails. Come on, somebody. And God's going to keep on doing what God is doing. Don't get distracted by, by the fruit. Like, thank you, God. That's awesome. But we're going to stay over here. One of the most significant indictments upon the church globally and locally across history is that we start in the soil, but we get preoccupied with the fruit. So the soil gets ignored. Things become unhealthy. And the move of God begins to wane and eventually ends instead of continuing to progress and into further degrees of development and increase. See, God's desire is that when he moves, it doesn't stay in its origination, but it continues to move into new iterations. It evolves, so to speak. It grows into more beautiful expressions of its origination. This is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He was encouraging them not to forget the soil, to know their role in what was happening and to steward it well. And then he's going to spend the next few chapters, chapter four, five, six, seven, and eight, and nine, and he's going to dig into the things that were happening within the church. And then he's going to get to chapter 10, and he's going to give this big global assertion to the church of what often happens, why humans have a tendency to jack things up. Can we just agree? Can we take a moment, therapy session for just a second? Can we all agree that we as humans have a tendency to jack things up? Come on, do I got a witness in church today? <laughs> Have you ever been there before where you're just like, man, I love what's happening here, but then you get like, you hesitate because you're like, humans are involved. How's this gonna go? Do you know marriages? Humans are involved. Parenting? Humans are involved. Society? Humans are involved. Isn't it interesting that everywhere we go, we, want, we have this utopian dream of what things could be? But yet we never stop and go, humans are involved. <laughs> and we believe that the church should be perfect. And we fail to realize, come on, return to your neighbor. Look at your neighbor. They're involved. Come on, the other neighbor, you got to look at the person that just looked at you. Come on. They're involved too. 
So Paul gets to chapter 10 and he writes this in verses one to six. He says, now I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, all of us, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Verse six, now these things took place as examples for us. So here's what Paul's gonna do. Paul, the apostle in a New Testament church is gonna grab back to Old Testament in order to bring examples and instruction from it for a New Testament church. Y'all see what I'm talking about? Which is just a really important aside that the Old Testament is still normative for us for teaching principles. And then Paul's gonna book in some of these issues that he's gonna get ready to talk about with these, with these statements, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 13. Y'all tracking with me still? These things happened to them, the stuff in the wilderness, we're about to read it, as examples. And they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the age have come. So whoever thinks he stands, better be careful not to fall. He's saying, hey, listen, some things happened in the wilderness that we all need to be made aware of because as we progress, as we grow, as we further, have you ever noticed that in the air that we breathe, we have this tendency to believe that what happened in the past can't happen in the future? And Paul's like, hey, I just wanna remind you the same things that happened in the wilderness are the same things that if you're not careful, you don't know your role and you don't play this thing right, the very things that happened in the wilderness will happen in your modern day world. And it's like Paul's prophetically speaking through the Corinthian church to us today. The same things that we saw wild and out in the church in the first century are the same things that we're still seeing wild and out in the church in the 21st century. And until Jesus comes back, if we don't understand these things, we will continue to perpetuate the same cycles over and over and over and over again, lest we decide my job is to stay in the soil, one plants, one waters, but God gives the increase. So let's look at some of the things that took place today. Now I'm gonna get really pastoral with you. Is that all right, everybody? You give me permission to offend us. <laughs> so these things that Paul's gonna talk about, he says these, these things are common to us. They're common to humanity. And so I wanna frame them today as barriers to healthy soil because if we're not careful, when we take our eyes off the soil and just care about the fruit, the enemy gets his eyes on the soil and starts planting other things than what we want in there. Amen? All right, need your help. Every shot number one. Here's the first barrier that we see through the children of Israel and Paul tells us we gotta be careful of. He says this, when we begin to crave something other than what God is currently doing. First Corinthians 10, six says this. Now these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire, every shot desire, desire evil things as they did. The word in the Greek that Paul uses um, right here for desire, it actually, it means to crave or to long after something. And this is what we see taking place with the children of Israel in Numbers chapter 11, verses four to six. Watch this. The riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. Ever shout other? other. Is it right if we study scripture today? had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites wept again and said, who will feed us meat? <laughs> we remember the free fish 
that we ate in Egypt. Oh, do you guys? You remember the free fresh fish that you had in slavery? You remember the free fish that you had in bondage? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt. And then they get wild and out along with the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions. Have you ever noticed when you're longing or craving after something, you can make anything sound good? <laughs> oh, that'll preach for a second, right? Like you're like, what's pate? They're like, it's just, you know, ground up liver. Mm, I'm hungry, that sounds good. We remember the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the, and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone. But there's nothing to look at but this manna. There's nothing to look at except for this miracle bread from heaven. There's nothing to look at but floating bread. Aren't humans weird? Why do we do this? We begin to do this when we see God's movement and provision simply as a product. Listen to this. Steward, or consumers crave, stewards manage. This often takes place because of entitlement, discontentment, because things do not look how we want them to look. And God's not doing things the way that we want them done. Am I talking to anybody in church today? <laughs> Often it, this plays out in our lives when the thing that we prayed for is no longer the thing that we want. So we begin to despise the very miracle and provision that God has provided. So now we want something new or, or, or different or, or better. Maybe it looks like this. Maybe you've been at the well for a long time and we prayed for God to move and we prayed for people to get saved and we prayed for people to show up and then all of a sudden one auditorium was full and two auditoriums are full and now a, a hub is full and everybody's online and, and the very thing that you prayed for is the thing that you despise now because you can't get the same parking lot space that you used to when you first started coming here or they keep on switching you and the ushers tell me I can't jump over the station. What do you mean auditorium once closed? What do you mean we have a church that welcomes people who are trying to figure out life? Can't believe that I heard swearing in the lobby. Can't believe they're wearing that. I can't believe I can't save my, my seat with my purse anymore because it's too dangerous. And if you ask me, I'm like, if our, if our lobby smells like weed, let's go. As long as it's not our team, our staff, or our pastors. Clarify that right now. <laughs> The worship team was like, yes, it's about time. <laughs> I, I, I use it, I, I know, I, please, my heart today, like seriously, if you were to ask my wife, my heart today is to make sure this doesn't come across like 
harsh or like overly corrective. I'm just trying to get into our space sometimes. The, the, the things that we think and do as humans. And this is what Paul's saying. They did it in the wilderness. They would much rather the food of captivity than the manna of freedom. And usually we do this because we have an over-assessment of who we are and an under-assessment of who God is. And so contentment is the antidote to unregulated craving and longing. And here's the contentment. If I stay in the soil, planting and watering, and trust God with what he's doing, I stay content. When I'm enamored by the fruit, how many of you know if you stare at something long enough? It gets old. Y'all see what I'm talking about here? That's why he says one plants, one waters, God gives the increase. St don't, don't stare at that. Just keep working in the soil. Come on, is there an amen in church today? All right, number two, every child, number two? Barrier number two, here we go, let's go deeper. When we begin to believe that there is something better than God, we call this idolatry. Listen, what Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 10, 7, don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Exodus chapter 32, one through seven, this is, the, this is the moment that Paul's writing about. He says, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make gods for us who will go before us. And the words that I want us to hear is go before us. Because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we have no idea what's happened to him. They would go on to build this little golden calf. And then the Bible would say in verse six, early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. They, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to a party. See, not many of us have golden calves set up in our living rooms. Shrines in our basements are carvings of deities around our house. But often we have other idols roaming around our minds, hearts, and even houses. See, idolatry is often seen when we believe that something or someone other than God can provide for us in the future what God provided in the past. Did you hear that today? This is idolatry. Is when we believe that something or someone other than God can provide for us in the future what God has provided in the past. And this is what the children of Israel were after when they said, come make gods for us who will go before us. What were they doing? They were ignoring the miracles that God had given them because they were frustrated in the moment that they were in now. It's when we believe that money will provide the security for our future that God provided in the past. It's when we believe that guy or that girl will provide comfort for the future that God provided in the past. It's when we believe that a degree will provide the affirmation we need in the future that God provided in the past. It's when we believe that a substance will provide peace in our future that God provided in the past. It's when we believe that a job will provide strength for the future that God provided in the past. You see, idolatry is when we take created things and give it a creator status. And this becomes a barrier to healthy soil and subsequently a barrier to stewarding and move of God. Can I just say something? I'm gonna challenge the Christians in the room now. This is what we've done with worship. 
I love coming here and worship and worshiping together. Please do not make worship an idol. But what happens in churches so quick is that we make worship an idol rather than the God we are worshiping, our God. How do we do that? Well, it's when a song's played and it's not your favorite. We made worship an idol. Because the, the tune of the song, the note of the song, the volume of the song, the this of the song, the singer of the song should never dictate the quality of my worship. So if the thing dictates the emotion or the, th the way in which you're engaging, you've made the thing the idol. You should be able to worship to hymns and rock and roll and hip hop and country. God bless it. I'm a fan now. I said it, went on record. Y'all see what I'm talking about? This is a big deal for the church right now in our current moment because what we've done is we've commodified, there's the word I'm looking for, is that right? We've made a commodity. <laughs> we use the action term. We've made a commodity of our liturgy. Is this all right with everybody today? Can, I, can we just reason together? If this sells and this sells and this sells, it must be good. Instead of us being a family who comes together and worships God, regardless of who's on stage, regardless of the song that's being played, regardless. Do y'all see what I'm talking about? I'm just telling you, like as your pastor right now, so I said this is a pastoral message, I, I'm, I'm looking into the future right now and it's scary for me. because of what's coming at the church and how the church is responding to different things. We heard a story that Erica was telling me about a story this week and this is not like a principle we're gonna necessarily engage in, but I'm gonna tell you right now, it's like after she mentioned this to me, I'm prayerfully considering it. We have a new acquaintance, um, some friends that she met, friend that she just met this weekend. Their church, it's a booming church. They decided we're done with social media. We're taking the church off of social media, everything. We're done with it. Why? Because we want, we want to stop making these moments that we have together a time to film what we should be participating in. Yeah. And I just think, I think about Paul showing up, walking down the aisle, be like, what is going on during worship? Y'all yeah. see what I'm talking about? I'm not, like, that's why I want you to hear my heart. I'm, I'm presenting this hopefully with some humility today. But I'm concerned that some of these things might get in the way. So we, we, we form idols. Number three, here's the third barrier. The other thing that happens that stops the move of God is when we become unrestrained in our ethics and morals. It's when the church believes that it's beyond consecration. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in a single day, 23,000 people died. 1 Corinthians 10.8. Numbers 25, one through three, tells us that Israel was staying at the Acacia Grove. The people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. Here's what I've come to learn about the diminishment in ethics and morals within the church usually begins to take place when we get bored with God. We get bored with the Holy Spirit, so I need a hit of something to feel real. 
Purity is not popular, but it is a prerequisite for power. We want God to move, but what are we putting in the soil? I just want us to think about the seed. God, we want fruit, but unrestrained ethics and morals are the seeds that we're putting in. Because Paul says, do, do not, do not, th- what you sow, you will reap. I know it's quiet in church, but we're talking about the character and the integrity of this thing right now. Because Paul says, what you build matters. How you do it matters. To see a move of God, to steward a move of God, we have to have healthy soil. We must dedicate ourselves to a life of holiness and consecration. I'm gonna invite the team up, number four, everybody shout number four. Oh man, this one's so, so frustrating at times. We all do it, I've done it. It's probably a big temptation in my life. Number four is when we become impatient with God. Come on, has anybody ever gotten impatient with God before? Come on, has anybody ever tried to take things into their own hands because they got impatient with God? You wouldn't be the only one. You look across scripture, we see it over and over and over again. That's what Paul writes. Verse nine, let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. What happened? Numbers 21, four through six. Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. Now they're traveling, but the people, here it is, became impatient because of the journey. Oh, impatience, you sneaky little fiend. It's probably one of the most seripitous of the, of the bunch. And it's staggering when we look across both scripture and experience to see the tremendous pain and consequence caused by impatience. And what seems so benign is actually a lethal cancer. Because if we're honest, how many of you would agree with me and recognize that there may be consequences that we are dealing with right now because we got impatient 10 years ago? Impatience is dangerous when it comes to the Lord. This is what A.W. Tozer said. Listen to these words. He says, in my creature impatience, I'm often caused to wish that there were some way to bring modern Christians into a deeper spiritual life painlessly by short, easy lessons. But such wishes are vain. No shortcut exists. God has not bowed to our nervous haste nor embraced the methods of our machine age. It is well that we accept the hard truth now. The man who would know God must give time to him. God doesn't work on our timetable, church. I gotta be honest with you, as we near our legacy offering, we as a church are gonna do what we're gonna do. As the pastor leading this thing, I know that I've gotta accept what God is gonna do. We sow in water, God gives the increase. So I'm gonna tell you today, as your leader, I have no idea what's gonna happen. Just, you know, week to week, we have no idea what's gonna happen. You may ask, do you guys know what you're doing? No. <laughs> I stopped knowing what I was doing two weeks into this thing. But here's what I do know. Yeah. I'm gonna stay in the dirt. Yeah. We're gonna keep telling. Yeah. We're gonna keep planting. Yeah. And we're gonna keep watering. 
and we're gonna keep sowing, and we're gonna keep watering, and God promised he would give the increase. Don't grow impatient. Here's what I've come to learn about impatience. You can't hurry what God is purposely holding back. Take it on for your life. No amount of strain, no amount of push, you cannot hurry what God is holding back. But how often do we do that? We try to push God, hurry God, hurry, hurry. He's like, bro, you can't move me. Slow. Number five, last one's this. This one's striking, somewhat convicting. The fifth thing that happens that Paul highlights is that complaint and grumbling begin to set in. And don't grumble, some of them did, 1 Corinthians 10, 10, and were killed by the destroyer. Just to be like a heads up, if you go study like the Old Testament, there's a lot of death in the Old Testament. Paul is not saying you're all gonna die. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that there is a severity to these issues. God cares about how we engage in this thing. Watch what happens in Numbers 14, 36 through 38. So the men Moses sent to scout out the land and who returned and incited the entire community to complain about him by spreading a negative report about the land, those men who spread the negative report about the land were struck down by the Lord. Here's what's fascinating to me, is that we as humans have the ability to look at the promise that God is bringing into and complain about it. Remember when you prayed for that thing? Okay, can we make it real right now? Remember when you prayed for her and you prayed for him? Remember when you prayed for that marriage and now you're in it? The very thing that you prayed for is the very thing you hate now. Can I just tell you, God didn't change his mind? Oh, it's getting quiet in church today. Remember that church that you prayed for? Then you showed up here one day. The first week and the second week and the third week. And you're like, man, all these people are so nice and loving. This, that, and the other. The very thing you prayed for is now the very thing that you hate. Because somewhere in the journey of fellowship, offense happened. Some of you came in here today because you just moved to the West. God brought you to the West. You were praying it because you were in the South and you're like, get me out of here. <laughs> God brought you to the West and about four weeks into winter, you're like, God, why did you bring me here to suffer and die? Can I get real with you? There are times over the past 11 years leading this church where I've sat back and the very thing that I prayed for when I was 30 years old is the thing that if I'm not careful, I find myself at times getting ungrateful for at 41. Why? Not because God's changed. Hurt, pain, tiredness, work, 
labor. Because if I'm honest, sometimes I try to put something in here that God doesn't want to grow. The thing about this last one, grumbling and complaining, usually comes from ungratefulness. I think if the church is gonna reorient itself to reach the world around us, we gotta get grateful again. We gotta get grateful for God's power. We gotta get grateful for what he said he would do within the context of this place. We gotta get grateful for the city that we live in. Oh, I know it's not perfect. We gotta get grateful for the things around. Man, what would happen if the church got grateful? These are the barriers that we see generation to generation. Church, this is my plea with us today, if you will. May we be a church that decides to know our role, to steward a move of God, to say, guess what? We're gonna stay in the dirt. God, we're gonna trust you with growth. We're gonna trust you with increase. I'm gonna trust you with these kids. I'm gonna trust you with this marriage. I'm gonna keep sowing forgiveness. I'm gonna keep on sowing peace. I'm gonna keep on sowing love. I'm gonna keep on sowing worship. I'm gonna keep on sowing joy. Come on, somebody, I'm gonna keep on sowing grace. I'm gonna keep on sowing passion. You wanna see a move of God? Come on, does anybody wanna see a move of God? Stay in the dirt. My challenge to all of us, as we continue to walk through this year, let's be the church. Come on, somebody that stays in the dirt, in Jesus' name. <laughs> Bow your head, close your eyes in this moment. Jesus, we thank you for your word today. I believe, God, that your word is unstoppable and that where it takes root, it will grow and it will flourish, and it will build, and fruit will be born. With every head bowed and every eye closed in this place today, I wanna to ask you a question. Have you said yes to Jesus? At the end of the day, this is where it all begins, this is where it all starts. We can't play in the soil until we first believe in the one that's the foundation of it all. So in both of our rooms today and in the hub, I wanna ask this question, have you said yes to Jesus? And if not, we're gonna pray a prayer all together today and give you the opportunity to do so. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, I'm gonna invite all of us just to say this out loud after me. And if you'd say today, man, Jason, I need to say yes to Jesus. I need to give him my life. Make him Lord of my life. Make this your prayer today. Come on, as loud as we can, everybody say Jesus. Jesus. I'm giving you everything. My past, my right now. I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me, change me, make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm gonna follow you all the days of my life. Today, I am making you Lord and Savior of my life. Thank you for saving me in Jesus' name.